Once upon a time, there was a poor young girl named Cinderella. She was the poorest girl in all the kingdom. She had a very hard life, but everything changed one day when she was invited to a royal ball. And at that ball, she met a handsome young prince, Prince Charming. And through an amazing set of circumstances, they met, they fell in love, and they got married. Cinderella's life was transformed. She became a princess, and she and the prince lived happily ever after. You know, when we think of kingdoms, I think we often view them through the lens of a fairy tale like that. In a fairy tale, the story always starts out badly, but, but good always triumphs. There's usually a prince and princess or a king and queen. And by the end of the story, we find that they always live happily ever after. And quite often in these fairy tales, a central figure is a young woman who is not royalty, but who winds up becoming a princess. I think that's one reason so many people got caught up in the recent royal wedding that took place in England. Because at one level, it seemed like a fairy tale come to life. Kingdoms, though, aren't fairy tales. Kingdoms are far more than cliched romances. Kingdoms are nations and rulers and people. And the real stories of real kingdoms don't always have happy endings because the kingdoms of this world so often are in conflict. And that certainly was the case when Jesus began his public ministry. He showed up in the ancient Near East at a time when two significant kingdoms were at odds. Rome and Israel coexisted in a tense relationship. Rome was dominant. Israel was subjugated under Rome. And each wanted their kingdom to prevail. And Jesus stepped into the middle of that world. And he never took sides between those two kingdoms. Instead, he announced good news. Good news to the world about a different kind of kingdom, the kingdom of God. And as we're going to see over the next few weeks, the kingdom announced by Jesus is far better than any fairy tale. God's kingdom is not based on adversarial relationships and hate. It is based on love. God's kingdom is not based on human power, but on the power of God unleashed through prayer. God's kingdom is not based on overlooking the marginalized, but on caring for and embracing the marginalized so they can live full lives as full citizens engaged in the kingdom of God. So when Jesus announced that God's kingdom is coming. He was announcing the coming of the only kingdom that can bring peace to a broken world full of broken, hurting people. The announcement of the kingdom was and is a message of hope because as Jesus makes clear, the kingdom of God is not some far-off, distant reality. God's kingdom is near because Jesus is near. And that's what we learn from the first chapter of the book of Mark. 
Let's take a look. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And Mark, as he begins this biography of Jesus, does not waste time with a lengthy introduction. He just jumps right in to get to the point. And at the outset, he wants his readers to know that the coming of Jesus is good news. It's good news for all people. And when Mark uses that term, good news, he's making a rather profound point. You see, he uses a Greek word that commonly refers to news about the emperor of Rome. When you lived under Roman rule, the empire was an ever-present reality in your life. And Caesar was at the center of that world. He was the headliner. So anyone announcing good news usually was talking about Caesar or his empire. But not Mark. Mark takes that familiar term that his readers would expect to lead to good news about Caesar, and instead he starts talking about Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Messiah, which means he's the chosen representative of God to come and redeem and restore the world. And then even though Mark doesn't say it, he wants us to understand that Jesus is coming as a king. And he makes that clear by quoting this prophecy from Isaiah about a herald who will precede Jesus. You see, in those days before mass communication, a king always would send a herald in advance to announce, the king's coming! And according to Isaiah, writing some 700 years before this moment. God gives him a glimpse of the future and he says, there's a herald that's going to appear on the scene to prepare people for the coming of King Jesus. And Mark says all this about Jesus. This Jesus who comes as the Son of God, as Messiah, as a king, and he does it without any reference to Caesar, who's the actual king of the empire. And I think it's rather amazing because Caesar was such a dominant figure in his world. It's hard hard for us to imagine a world without digital communication. But in a world that lacked that, Caesar's presence and his power were pervasive. His image was everywhere. His soldiers patrolled the streets and the trade routes. His edicts affected the way you lived. And yet Mark ignores him. Mark ignores him completely. He blows right past Caesar to talk about Jesus. I think Mark is telling us that despite Caesar's sway over his earthly kingdom, in the grand scheme of things, he's just not that important. And Mark's not alone in ignoring Caesar. When we read the New Testament, we find that Caesar rarely is mentioned. And to the best of my ability to determine, I believe Jesus only mentions Caesar once. Now think about that 
and then think about this. How many times this past week did you or I talk about the president or the Congress or the Supreme Court compared to how many times did we talk about Jesus? You see, I think we've allowed this relentless 24-hour news cycle that surrounds us to co-opt our priorities and our thinking and our conversation. It dominates too much of our lives. And the next time we find ourselves getting worked up over the news and allowing it to drive us either to fear or anxiety, I think we ought to disengage and go pray. And through a time of prayer to reorient our thinking and our focus and our attention on Jesus. Jesus deserves so much more of our attention than the people and the issues that are highlighted on television and radio and the internet. I believe that's what Mark is showing us here by ignoring Caesar. He wants Jesus to get the attention because Jesus comes as God's king. The king who is about to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. And Jesus will do that as soon as Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled. We see that next, starting in verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. This is the direct fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Look at this interesting description of John. John wore clothing, (coughs) excuse me, he wore clothing made of camel's hair. That doesn't sound terribly comfortable. With a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts with wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Mark wants us to see that John is the God-appointed messenger who serves as the spiritual herald for Jesus to let us know that Jesus is coming as a king. Now, even though he's playing this part of a herald, it's clear from the description that he's not exactly like your typical royal herald. He's very different than someone who would be a herald for Caesar. I mean, he's dressed like an Old Testament prophet. His dietary choices are rather unusual. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd put locusts on my menu. And most unusually, and most importantly, John doesn't simply announce that this king is coming. He says you need to personally prepare to receive this king. And you do that through repentance and baptism. In other words, people need to to acknowledge their failures and demonstrate that they want to be right with God. John's message lets people know that Jesus is coming as a spiritual king. So he's not coming to replace Caesar, he's coming to supersede Caesar. And now, as, as I ponder all this, it strikes me that we could see an apparent contradiction between the message of Mark and the message of John. Mark starts and says, I've got good news, the king is coming. 
John says, you've messed up, repent. And does that sound like good news to you? If someone comes to me and says, Bruce, I've got to talk to you about some sin in your life. Someone comes to you and says, you know, I've got to talk to you about some lying I've noticed or some pride or some other kind of ethical or moral failure. Do we receive it as good news? Of course not. And maybe that tells us we need to redefine good. You see, it's not good for you and me to ignore the junk in our lives. The good news is that Jesus is coming to help us drive the bad stuff out of our lives, and this is a great act of love. Love does not embrace nor celebrate sin. Love draws us toward God and helps us to change through the power of the Spirit so that we can experience the best that God has for us. And John's invitation to repent and be baptized is a first step in that process. It's an initial step people can take in that day to get ready for the coming of King Jesus, the King who is going to come in, who is going to fill people with the Holy Spirit. And people who are filled with God's Spirit can be transformed and truly experience the best that God has for them. And Mark tells us that hundreds of people, perhaps thousands of people, respond to this invitation. They come out to repent and be baptized because they're eager to be ready for the coming of the king. And as all of these people are repenting and being baptized, suddenly there's a huge surprise because Jesus himself shows up and submits to John's baptism. Look what happens at that moment. Verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. Try and picture this scene. Jesus is baptized by John. He comes out of the water, and the Holy Spirit makes himself visible in the form of a dove and comes down on Jesus. The heavens are opened up. People hear the voice of God the Father speaking. And I think what Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus' baptism has nothing to do with repentance. He had no need to repent of anything. Jesus' baptism is much more like a coronation ceremony. The Heavenly Father is commending His Son. He's crowning His Son with power and glory through the Holy Spirit, and He's commissioning His Son to serve as our King. It's an amazing, amazing moment. I try to imagine what it must have been like for Jesus in that moment. To come out of the water, to feel the Holy Spirit come upon him, to hear the Heavenly Father publicly affirm him. I think that would be just an incredible spiritual high. I believe he'd be thinking to himself, this is awesome. I can't wait to get on with my ministry because something great is sure to happen next. Nope. Nope. Because what happens next 
is a real downer. The Holy Spirit actually leads Jesus into a battle with Satan. Think about that. Right after this intensely spiritual, exultant moment, Jesus experiences some testing. He has to go through some temptation. He has to go through some moments when it would be really easy to say, hey, God, what happened? And we need to recognize that his experience here is not unusual. It's happened to some of us. Right on the heels of a spiritual high point, Satan shows up and tries to lure us away from Jesus. And Jesus goes through that kind of experience to show us that we can overcome Satan just the way he does. We do not need to yield to the tempter when we trust the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. Jesus shows us how to conquer Satan. But there's something else happening here too, and it has to do with the kind of temptation that Satan offers to Jesus. Mark doesn't dwell on the details, but Matthew in his biography makes it clear that this battle between Jesus and Satan is a battle of kingdoms. Satan is the prince of this world. Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. And Satan wants Jesus to yield. Jesus does not give in. And because he is victorious over Satan, he demonstrates to us that he is fit to be our king. And now on the heels of that, he is ready to announce the coming of the kingdom of God. Verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So John was sent as a herald to proclaim the coming of Jesus. John is now put in prison, which makes it clear then that his role is ended. And that lets Jesus know that it's time for him. It's time for him to announce the coming of God's kingdom. And the key thing to notice here is that the kingdom is not a fairy tale. It's not something that people have to wait to experience. It's not far off. It's not something that's reserved for the next life. God's kingdom is coming and God's kingdom is near because the king himself is now on the scene. And this coming kingdom is not what the Romans want. And it's not what the Jews expect. Caesar doesn't want to hear any news about another king and another kingdom. He'd view that as a direct threat. And the Jews don't want to hear this. They want to hear that the kingdom of Israel is near. Because they think that Israel is the kingdom of God. And neither Israel nor Rome are going to get what they want because Jesus is announcing a kingdom that transcends Rome and transcends Israel. He's announcing the kingdom of God which is unique because it encompasses both heaven and earth. 
And as the biblical story unfolds and we watch the kingdom grow, we see that it's not limited by geography, but it draws its citizens from every nation and every ethnic group and every kingdom. Anyone can become a citizen of God's kingdom if they repent and choose to follow Jesus. This announcement of the kingdom is good news not just for us as individuals, it's good news for the world. Jesus is bringing a message of hope that goes beyond just getting ourselves right with God as individuals. We understand now that God wants to restore the world so that it will function as he originally intended. And it begins right here, right now, at the start of Jesus' ministry as he begins to bring the kingdom of God into existence and make it a reality. It's a message of hope for the world. And yet, because we're foolish people, because we're imperfect people, we need to get healed and we need to get cleaned up to become citizens of God's kingdom. And that's why Jesus says, I want you to repent. And so we confess to God that we've fallen short of his expectations. And we admit that our attitudes and actions have harmed ourselves and have harmed others. We admit that we've allowed ourselves to get caught up in the partisan passions of our times just as the Jews and the Romans did. We get caught up in things that result in anger and hatred and division and they distract us from living as kingdom citizens. Jesus wants us to enlarge our worldview so we can show the world what kingdom life is like by living together as kingdom citizens in the kingdom community. And among other things, at the most practical level, this means allowing God's Spirit to help us live in community with people who are not like us. And Jesus, as always, points the way. He gives us a glimpse of the kingdom community by assembling a small band of 12 disciples. And these are men who could find it very easy to constantly be at odds with each other because of their differences. And we find these men listed in the book of Mark chapter 3 verses 13 to 19. And we can learn a lot from their community and what Jesus did to form them and shape them as a community. Mark 3.13, Jesus went up to a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. It's a great nickname, isn't it? Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So, just a list of names. At first reading, the thing that might shock us the most is that one of the people Jesus chooses is a man named Judas who's actually going to betray him. However, when we dig a bit deeper, when we look elsewhere in Scripture and put different parts of the puzzle together, we learn a lot about these men, and we find some interesting dynamics at work. This actually is a fairly diverse little community. For example, Matthew is a wealthy tax collector. In today's world, he'd be the kind of guy sitting behind a desk, punching a calculator and working Excel spreadsheets on his computer. 
He's not a laborer. And by way of contrast, we have people like James and John and Peter and Andrew, and they are laborers. They're fishermen who engage in a very physically demanding job. And laborers and office workers and executives don't have a lot in common professionally, and yet these men learn to get along. They do so because they're in community with King Jesus. And through Jesus, they develop a vision, a vision of life that's bigger than their careers, bigger than their occupation, bigger than their lifestyle. They learn to live as kingdom of God citizens who trust in the leadership of King Jesus, and they follow him. And this little community consists of widely differing personalities. Peter's very impulsive. He often speaks without thinking, and it's very clear that he likes to be first. He and John have a friendly rivalry. James and John are outspoken, and they earn that nickname, Sons of Thunder. It's also clear from what we find in Scripture that all of these men struggle with pride in various ways. Yet they learn to get along. You see, they're in community with King Jesus. And through Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit, they develop a vision of life that's bigger than their need to be first. And they learn to live as kingdom of God citizens who trust in the leadership of King Jesus and they are willing to follow him wherever he leads. And then there's the political differences. As a tax collector, Matthew has aligned himself with Rome in order to become wealthy. Simon the Zealot hates Rome. He's probably conspiring to overthrow the empire. In today's world, we'd call Simon an activist. And he would view Matthew as a traitor to Israel, And Matthew would view Simon as a narrow-minded Israeli nationalist. You see, these two men each have a deeply vested interest in different earthly kingdoms. Humanly speaking, it would be very difficult for these men to get along. You know, I think they're the kind of guys that in today's world they'd be arguing on Facebook and Twitter ultimately wind up calling each other names, probably wind up each calling each other the latest incarnation of Adolf Hitler because that seems to be where so many digital arguments wind up. Useless name calling. But these two men find common ground. They find common ground because they're in community with King Jesus. And he helps them develop a vision of life that's bigger than their understandable loyalty to their preferred earthly kingdom. They learn to live as kingdom of God citizens who trust the leadership of King Jesus and they follow him. And again, as the biblical story unfolds, what we find is this, with the exception of Judas, the betrayer who had a hidden agenda, all of these men learn to love each other and support each other and work together. And their ability to live in community and to live in peace with one another is a powerful demonstration of the reality of God's kingdom. It's a demonstration that God's kingdom is near. The kingdom of God is near because God is building his community and people's lives and relationships are being changed. 
worldview is being transformed. And these men follow the king. And they help to build the kingdom of God by drawing in other people to be part of the kingdom community. And outsiders looking in say to themselves, I want to be part of that. Because that's a kingdom where unity and peace can be found. Life in God's kingdom is not a fairy tale. The kingdom is real. And the kingdom is near. Because Jesus is near. And his spirit is here among us. And Jesus wants us, just like his original band of 12, to draw ever closer together into a community of people who can transcend our differences. And it's not easy. It's not easy because we are different. And some of the differences between us are small and some are profound. In our own little piece of God's kingdom here at Gardenway Church, we have laborers and office workers and executives, teachers and students, scholars and dropouts, tech wizards and people who don't even know how to turn on a computer, Anglos and people of color, soldiers and pacifists. We have people who have very different views of America and very different views of America's role in the world. And our challenge, our opportunity, is to learn how to keep all of those things, big and small, in proper perspective. And to not allow any of them to overshadow our commitment to Jesus and His kingdom. And as we increasingly learn to live in peace despite our differences, we help the world see that the kingdom of God is real and the kingdom of God is near. And as people see us live in peace, they will want to be part of this community. And we can draw them to our King, King Jesus only one who brings peace.